welcome back to another episode of the Aquatic Mentors podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Van Eyck, and today I'm really excited to bring you another Inside Asta interview. So for those of you that were looking at my Facebook page and working on the hint that I gave yesterday for today's episode, the person we're speaking to, the CEO of the Australian Swimming Coaches and Teachers Association, or ASTA, is Brendan Ward. So Brendan Ward has been the ASTA CEO since 2017. He's an extensive 19-year background in associations and charitable organisations including the Australasian Society of Association Executives, Registered Masters Builders Association, the New Zealand Recreation Association and Water Safety New Zealand. He has also had a taste of government heading up the New Zealand Charities Regulator. Brennan's aquatic experience includes water polo player, coach and referee for water polo, pool lifeguard, surf lifeguard and a nippers coach and he enjoys recreational swimming. He competed at the 1991 and 1994 World Swimming Championships and attended the 2004 and 2008 Olympic Games and the 2006 Melbourne Commonwealth Games as a commentator for TVNZ. Brendan has served on a variety of not-for-profit and school boards and ran the internationally acclaimed volunteer program for the Rugby World Cup in 2011 in New Zealand. In his spare time, somewhere in there when he does get spare time, Brendan likes to swim, cycle and spend time with his family and friends. So with all that history and experience, we can definitely see that Aster is in great hands. And with his team... It is just fantastic to see what they've been able to achieve over this lockdown period. And during the interview, we do meet his beautiful little cute doggy called Diesel. And you will hear throughout the last bit of the episode, Diesel making cute little noises in the background. And I hope you enjoy this episode. I got a lot from it. As I've been saying, these industry leaders, they've got a lot to share with us. And it's great to be able to learn a lot more from them and a lot more about them. So enjoy this episode. Please let me know what you think. I love feedback. I learn a lot from feedback. So please share it. So if you want to be interviewed for an episode and share your story, please definitely send me an email. My details are all in the show notes. I love to interview. I love to find out more about people in the swimming industry and what they've done. So enjoy our episode with the CEO of Asta, Brendan Ward, and our Inside Asta exclusive. So Brendan, how did you start your journey in swimming? Oh, long, long time ago. I was probably two years old and my parents were throwing a party and I managed to get into the next door neighbor's swimming pool. Oh, wow. And thankfully they had a dog. And the dog actually rescued me out of the pool. And from that point on, my mum, uh, probably to a lesser extent, my father decided that I really needed to learn how to swim. <laughs> uh, I, I almost drowned. And I think that was a catalyst really for not only the learn to swim, but probably the love of the water. Yeah. And from a very early age, I remember going to swimming lessons. In fact, I remember my first swim teacher. His name was Mr. Michael John. And he was from the Boys and Girls Institute in Wellington. 
it sounds like an awful place, but it actually was a really nice <laughs> warm indoor pool. <laughs> and I remember he was that really old school teacher with the broomstick that prodded you in the back if you stopped. And uh, he had some favorite sayings, you know, over the barrel and under the trough. <laughs> and uh, he, I don't know, whilst he was quite a, a rough, gruff sort of, uh, that's certainly what I remember him as being. He was also very kind and compassionate and empowering and really passionate about the swimmers that he was looking after. And, you know, I guess I was, uh, I was never a great swimmer. I think a lot of failed swimmers end up in surf lifesaving or water polo or other <laughs> aquatic sports. And that was certainly me. I remember going from that learn to swim period. I remember competing a couple of times and being pretty woeful, really. I was, I was a pretty tubby kid, uh, <laughs> but I was quite strong and I had a good arm. So I ended up playing water polo and I loved it. It was absolutely my life. And I remember starting at intermediate school in New Zealand, which is probably around about a, a 10 or 11 year old sort of age group. Yep. And they announced that water polo was starting. So I, did, I signed up and started probably my first or second week of school. And I started in the D team. And then the next weekend I was in the C team. And then the next week I was in the B team. And then the next week I was in the A team. Oh and, and it just went from there. I had this real love of the water. In fact, I was probably an awful student and learned to swim because I probably spent most of the time under the water rather than on top. You know, oh. those kids that really drive you nuts. <laughs> that was one of them. <laughs> Seems to be a reoccurring theme, having those people on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. And such quick promotion through the ranks in water polo. It shows determination and the skill that you had. It's amazing to come from where you started by nearly almost drowning to now loving the water and being such a great polo player. Yeah. I suppose I went on to represent Wellington pretty quickly, actually. So that was the... 10 or 11 year old me was in the under 13 team pretty quickly and remember going to a tournament and just being part of that team environment was just fantastic and my mum got involved as a manager and my sister started playing she was younger than me and that just became our family thing to do and I was really fortunate to have some fantastic coaches when I was a kid and I don't necessarily just mean the swimming teacher, but from a water polo perspective, some people that were able to teach me really good values, leadership qualities, goal setting, planning, those sorts of things, which I think not only helped my water polo career, but also just generally life skills, leadership, those sorts of things. And I remember starting at high school. So fast forward, probably two or three years, 13 year old, maybe. And I remember a coach saying, you need to write your goals down. And so I wrote down three goals and two of them related to when I was at school, I wanted to captain the New Zealand schoolboys water polo team. That was my goal. Yeah. My second goal is I wanted to make the New Zealand men's team before I left school. And my third goal was that I wanted to compete at the Olympics. So I made the New Zealand schoolboys team in, in my second year of high school. Played in the schoolboys team every year from there on and kept the schoolboys team, New Zealand schoolboys team, in my last year of high school. And we toured to Australia and played against the Australians and we got soundly thrashed, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which was okay. You know, it was a great experience. Would have been better if we'd won or at least won one game, but um, that wasn't to be. 
And one of the cool things was that earlier that year, so earlier in the, the last year of my high school, I actually made it into the New Zealand men's team and played at the AIS Cup. And that was just a massive eye-opener. So I achieved the first two of my goals. And I suppose a year or two after I'd left school, we attended the Olympic qualifying tournament in Perth. And I was still in the New Zealand men's team then. And that didn't go so well either. <laughs> we won one game and that was against Guam. And <laughs> Guam was really the, the US naval team, I think. <laughs> I realized very quickly that I was never going to make the Olympics as a player. And so I thought, right, how do I flex here? What can I do to achieve my dream of going to the Olympics? And so I started working and was doing voluntary commentary, sports commentary in Wellington on the radio. And I also really got serious about refereeing. So whilst I was still playing competitively and I did attend the World Champs in Perth in 1991 and Rome in 1994, I was also going down this path of being a referee. I finally became a FINA referee. I think it was about 2001. And at the same time, I was really actually starting to make some traction in the commentary world. And I got a, a phone call from a small satellite TV station, cable TV, and they asked me if I'd be interested in doing some commentary. I started doing some hockey and I did water polo and volleyball and 10 pin bowling and aerobics and <laughs> all sorts of really crazy things, but it was a really great grounding. And I started to become not too bad, good enough for television New Zealand at one point to pick me up and say, look, we've seen what you've been doing in the hockey. Our normal hockey commentator is unavailable due to some other circumstances. And would you be interested in having a, a try, having, giving it a shot? And I said, yeah, absolutely. That sounds like fun. So I went along and did the first game and the producer came up to me afterwards and said, yeah, that was okay. Maybe you could do next week as well. So I did next week and then she came back up to me and said, yeah, that was okay. Maybe you could do the third and final test for us. I said, okay. <laughs> and it just kind of took off from there. And I remember this uh, producer got in touch with me and said, hey, Brendan, the world softball champs are on in Christchurch in January next year. And this was, I think, sort of November, early December. Yeah. And I said, oh, are they? And she said, yeah, yeah, they're going to be broadcast on television too and we're looking for a bit of a younger kind of vibe around it all because my father had formerly been the softball commentator for television New Zealand and radio New Zealand for about the last three decades oh wow and I said I'd love to do it and so what I found out later is that she called my dad and said hey Gary the softball champs are on next year and he said yeah I know she said they're in Christchurch yeah I know we want to do them on tv too and he said oh do you and she said yes yeah. so can you give me Brendan's phone number <laughs> <laughs> he was quite offended, <laughs> but also pretty chuffed that I was going to do it. Look, I remember I spent a huge amount of time preparing for that because I didn't really know a lot about softball, uh, even though I said I did to get the gig. And my whole extended family were into softball. You know, my uncle was in the International Softball Hall of Fame as well as my auntie. My cousin had coached the Swedish team and played for the New Zealand Phillies and so on. So as had my dad. And I'd been around softball all my life, but I couldn't say that I was a, an expert in it. Went down and commentated those champs. And at the end of it, I got a phone call from the head of sport for Television New Zealand. And he said, hey, Brendan, we think you did a great job on the softball world champs how would you like to come to Athens with us? Oh, wow. And so at the beginning of 2004, just after the softball champs, which were in January, 
all of a sudden, my dream was just within reach. I could grasp it. It was right there. And so I called my dad and I said, you know, hey, did you listen to that last commentary? Did you listen to the final? And he said, Brendan, I couldn't have done any better myself. Oh, wow. And he was my idol. He was my absolute mentor. And that meant the absolute well to me. And so fast forward to July and I was off. I was on the big plane heading to Athens and I was sitting next to my dad. And we actually commentated the water polo together in Athens and became the first ever father-son commentary team from any country on television at an Olympic Games, which was just one of the most special moments of my life. And I was fortunate to then do that again with him in Beijing, at the Olympics in Beijing. And we also commentated together at the Commonwealth Games here in Melbourne. Uh, which we didn't do anything together. We were on the same commentary team, but he was doing the weightlifting and I was doing the hockey. So it was a pretty special time for me. I was able to combine my absolute passion, which was water polo, with my highest achieving ambition, which was to go to the Olympic Games. And whilst I can never say that I was an athlete there, I can certainly say that I'm part of that Olympic family, which is pretty special. That's absolutely amazing. What a history you've got and from an early age you know the three main goals and be able to achieve them all whether it be directly or indirectly by going as a commentator to the olympics that's an amazing achievement well done that's great yeah thank you i think i've always had this sense of community and the sense of giving back i remember being a probably 15 or 16 year old and getting onto the club water polo committee and the committee at the Surf Lifesaving Club. And I think that refereeing example is probably another good example of that giving back. You know, I've been a coach, a water polo coach. I coached the Wellington Provincial Women's Team and and our club teams. I was a player coach. And, you know, I've always had this kind of sense of community. And after working for 12 years at Westpac, straight out of school, I decided that that really didn't fit with my values and motivations. And I wasn't about making profits and cutting costs and shareholder returns. And I wanted to do something that was a bit more meaningful and a bit more purposeful. So I left Westpac and got a job with Water Safety New Zealand, which I suppose in many respects in New Zealand is like the equivalent of Royal Life Saving Society here. And I was running the drowning register I was, I suppose, the go-to person for all the funding that was provided to the member organisations of our water safety, which included Swimming New Zealand and uh, Royal Lifesaving and kayaking and all sorts of other groups. And I suppose over the four or five years after that, I became the 2IC and was the spokesperson on a lot of TV and radio for water safety in New Zealand and drowning prevention. But I remember, again, this goes back to this goal orientation. I remember the interview for that role, the CEO at the time said to me, so Brendan, where do you want to be in four years, five years time? And I said, Alan, I want to be the CEO of an organization like this. And sure enough, five years later, I was the CEO of the New Zealand Recreation Association. And I guess the coverage of that organization was the people that were part of running pools, parks, rec centres and community recreation. So it was multiple constituent stakeholder groups. So I was at Water Safety for five years. I was at the Recreation Association for six years. And then I left to run the volunteer program for Rugby World Cup in 2011. 
And that was probably, uh, apart from COVID-19, was probably the busiest I've ever been in my life <laughs> uh, in, terms of, in, in terms of workload. And I started there and there had been nothing developed, no strategy, no operational plans for how the volunteer program was going to be run. So I spent 18, 19 months developing the strategy, recruiting the staff, pulling together how we were going to run it, setting the vision for what we wanted the volunteers to do and and how we wanted them to work. And had some fantastic advice from David Brattell, actually. He ran the volunteer program for the Sydney Olympic Games. And he came over and gave us some really good guidance several times throughout that journey. But we ended up recruiting 5,586 volunteers from the top of New Zealand to the bottom. (laughs) And for those that don't know, the Rugby World Cup runs for a six-week period. And so we had to think of how we were going to keep volunteers engaged in quite an intensive and extended time frame. And so we did all sorts of things like making sure the uniform was really cool and quite warm and providing everyone with food and meal vouchers and we had a reward and recognition program and all those sorts of things. So that was a pretty intense period and really pleased that the volunteer program was internationally acclaimed, not only by the International Rugby Board, but by many others who looked to that volunteer program as a model for how to do volunteering programs for major events, which was pretty special, you know, and and obviously we'd taken a lot of direction from the Olympics and everything else, but it was a highly successful program. And I remember going on a a road trip, trying to encourage people to put their name forward and role as as a volunteer. And we had this really slick promotion where I'd come running on stage after this really powerful video with lots of images of adventure tourism and New Zealand and rugby and all sorts of things. And I'd say, who wants to be a volunteer for the World Cup in 2011? (laughs) And everyone would go, yeah. (laughs) And then I proceeded to tell them how awful it was going to be and it was going to be cold and windy and wet and they'd have to do long shifts. And, you know, we wanted to really set the expectation, build the excitement, but set the expectation and the reality of what it was going to be like. So, yeah, that was pretty successful. And then after that, I went on and, and effectively ran the Charities Commission in New Zealand. Wow. Uh, so I was the general manager of charity services, reporting to the Charities Registration Board, the deputy director general of the Department of Internal Affairs and the minister for the community and voluntary sector. And so that was probably equally as busy, but a lot more mentally stimulating. I had to learn things like the Statute of Elizabeth 1601 or whatever it was. It was like a 400-year-old statute, uh, which really grounded the whole charity sector in New Zealand. And that was hugely challenging. Moved on to Master Builders in New Zealand and then to the Australasian Society of Association Executives. So yeah, I guess where I was coming to uh, was that really done a lot of work in associations. And when I took the role at the Australasian Society of Association Executives, it was based here in Brisbane. And just as I was about to start, I saw this role advertised, the CEO of Asta. And I thought, oh, gee, that would have been an ideal role. I would love that. But I've just taken this role, and so I can't really renege on that. But I tell you what, if that ever comes up again, I'm going to grasp it with two hands. And sure enough, about, um, I think it was probably about 18 months later or maybe slightly longer, two years later, 
that role came up again and I was like, yes, <laughs> this is, this is my passion and my profession all coming together. <laughs> and so I applied for it and was very enthusiastic and uh, was fortunate enough to get the role, which I absolutely love. And, you know, I guess it's been three massive years of really looking at the state of play, trying to think about how we move forward, trying to be strategic, but also building the foundation of the business, making sure that we're sustainable, making sure that we've got the right people and all those sorts of things. And and it's been a hugely challenging time, but one that I've just absolutely loved. Wow. And I think from what you've explained that Aster is in such great hands with so much experience in your life and what you've developed to be able to bring that into Aster. And I think right now it's coming to its fore. That experience is just blowing everyone out of the water to be able to develop what you have in this COVID outbreak and to be able to bring Aster forward and swimming in Australia. I think that's fantastic. Thanks, Katrina. Yeah, it's been a pretty special time. I think one of the things that I've learned with all the different roles that I've had and particularly around this sort of volunteering and everything is that there's no way that you can do everything on your own. And one of the things that I learned very early on is that you want to surround yourself with the best possible people. And as far as I'm concerned, I want to try and employ and encourage people that are smarter and better than I am. And I certainly feel that I have that in Sally and Gary. They're both really passionate, highly intelligent and very capable people. And they lead teams within their their own sort of areas and departments that are really outstanding. They're doing some fantastic work. And the board of ASTA, the advisory committee for Swim Australia, they're all just so passionate about this industry that we work in. And that's what I love. I love the fact that everyone is so committed and they they just want it to succeed they want it to be special they want it to be that they want to teach kids to swim to stay alive but most importantly to have fun and enjoy it Mm. and that's really special for me yeah and I think that's it that's what swimming is it's not just a sport it's actually a life-saving the pleasure it's enjoyment it's relaxation there's so much more to swimming I think that's where we've got the advantage and that people become so passionate And to be able to use that to build swimming is just great because it takes it more out of just it being a sport and a recreation. It's a way of life. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's great. That's, and as you said, it's a fantastic team that's been able to bring everything to the front and build such a a great platform for all of us swim teachers and coaches to be able to develop from. So good. Mm. So you've mentioned a lot of lessons that you had and one of them was that employing people that are are smarter and passionate um, to bring up swimming. But are there any other biggest lessons that you've learned through your swimming journey? Oh, lots. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the biggest, I remember my dad when I was about nine years old and he was teaching me to mow the lawns and I didn't realize why, but it was because he was about to leave home. And I remember him saying as he was mowing the lawns, Brendan, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. I like that. And I think that stuck with me. And I remember when I was coaching some of the, the kids that I was responsible for, I felt like they needed a bit more kind of motivation. 
And so I remember writing all these kind of quotes on the board, you know, success comes in cans, not cannots. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, just all sorts of things. But I think what I didn't know then as a coach and what I didn't appreciate is the intrinsic motivation, the fact that people have to want to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. And you can provide the guidance and the direction, but ultimately you need people that have that same level of passion or attitude uh, behaviors that you want not not necessarily the same as what you've got but certainly what you expect and i think that's a really critical piece of the puzzle i think if you get that alignment that uh, whether it's culture or whether it's philosophy i think if you've got that around you then that's really important and I guess through all of those roles, I've been really fortunate to have attended a lot of conferences, <laughs> a lot of associations. They all run their own conferences. They're all doing similar sorts of things. And I had the privilege of going to Kuching and I listened to a, a guy who was one of the keynote speakers. He's a magician out of Adelaide and he's now applying his trade in the US. He's very successful. And he wanted to be the best possible keynote speaker. And he uses magic as his vehicle to impart wisdom, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I just clearly remember one of the things he said was, you are a direct reflection of the top five people you spend time with. So who are the five people that you spend the most time with? And do they give you the things that you need to get where you want to go? As a result of that, I purged some of my friends. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually heard that one as well. And that was something I had the same thing of, oh, who is and who isn't right for me. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I guess those are all kind of things that help to motivate and inspire me. Yeah, I don't know if there's there's lots of other learnings that I can really kind of succinctly put into something which would be beneficial, but... I think that we're a a product of all of the life experiences that we have. I remember when I was working at Westpac and climbing that corporate ladder, I got really annoyed that they would recognize and pay people more for having a degree than for those that didn't. And in particular, those that had done other things. And so I actually, I remember going to them and saying, why don't you recognize other achievements? sporting, cultural, whatever else. And if someone's been able to persevere and learn and apply their skills and knowledge and and trade to something which has got them to a representative type situation, then surely that should count for as much as a a degree does. And it was a much more persuasive argument than what I've just said, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they agreed with me. Oh wow! And I remember the the HR department said, "Okay, yeah, sure, we'll we'll pay you as though you've got a degree, even though you haven't got one, just because I played in the New Zealand men's water polo team." Wow. <laughs> and they did that for others within the organisation as well, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, and I know that feeling too. So for me, it's a lot about life experiences, and it may not just be what you've done on the books. More life experiences, actually, hands-on work. To have physically used it is, I think, more of an advantage than someone who's just learnt from the academic and learnt it on paper. Yeah, I agree. 
that applied learning is so important. Oh, that's so cute. What's his name? This is Diesel. Diesel's a cross between a Shih Tzu and a Jack Russell. Yeah. So he's my little Jack shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> that's made my day. You can definitely see the Jack Russell. I wasn't sure about yeah, the Shih Tzu. You can see it in the fluff. Oh, how that's old? pretty cool little dude. 13 weeks. Oh, wow. Very young. You've commented about a lot of highlights in your swimming journey. It's your commentating and your water polo where you've met those goals and then also becoming CEO of Asta, which we're very grateful for and we're glad that you took that up. Is there any other highlights in your swimming journey that have stood out for you? So it's probably, okay, I'm going to give you two. One's a swimming one and one's a water polo one. Perfect. And the swimming one, which I'm not proud of, <laughs> but I'll just say that up front. Yep. I remember I was probably about 14 or 15 years old and we entered into the Wellington Age Group Championships. Yep. And the we is four of us who played water polo together. <laughs> and we decided that we would swim the, the four by 50 free. Yeah. And we decided that we would all swim at head up freestyle. <laughs> and we won the silver medal. <laughs> so there you go. There's a, there's a bit of a funny highlight for you. Oh, that's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> it's the best I've heard so far. <laughs> the water polo one, I think, is probably the 1994 World Champs in Rome. Yeah. And... I was the fittest I had ever been and have ever been. Trained really hard for it. I I had the most amount of pull time out of anyone in the New Zealand team. I was the top equal goal scorer for New Zealand throughout the tournament. And the highlight for me was when we played against Spain, I marked this guy by the name of Manuel Estiate. And he was universally regarded as the best water polo player in the world for not only that world champs, but uh, probably a span of about five years. And I marked him for most of the game and he never scored on me. Wow. And I've got this wonderful photo of me and him at the end of the game, kind of standing arm in arm. He was uh, an absolute legend and to not only play against them, but to mark them and, and succeed in some respect. They thrashed us, by the way, but anyway, that's beside the point. <laughs> that doesn't matter. We'll forget that bit. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll forget that bit, yeah. So that was a pretty special time for me, and playing at those World Champs was, yeah, it was kind of surreal in many respects. I remember the last night of those World Champs going and watching the final of the 1500, and what an awesome race that was with uh, Daniel Kowalski and Kieran Perkins, first and second. And I think being a fellow Kiwi and my husband and I, every time the Olympics come around, we talk about it. New Zealand do so well, but I think it's just having such a small population compared to all the other places. And I suppose also the cash behind sport and things like that as well. And it's it's such a shame because there's so many great achievers in New Zealand that we just never get over the tip of the hill. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, it's a massive challenge for New Zealand and New Zealand athletes. And back in New Zealand, it's often talked about punching above our weight. Yeah. And 
I certainly believe that. And I've been privileged enough, both in a commentary perspective and as, as an athlete, to be involved with a lot of sports people in New Zealand. And I know a lot of the, the swimmers, and I know Daniel Loder very well, and uh, and a bunch of others. And what strikes me almost to the person that have been successful is their humbleness mm. and the fact that they're so down to earth and realistic and just, you know, really good to get along with. And I think that's probably another part of the Kiwi spirit. But I have to say, I did not expect to feel as welcomed and as integrated into Australia Mm. as I have been. And I think that probably my criticism of New Zealanders is we have that big brother mentality when Australians come to New Zealand, whether it be for work or sport, and almost a level of I don't know, resentment or something, I don't know. But yeah. that's certainly not reciprocated in Australia. And I think Australians are more, more welcoming of New Zealanders than New Zealanders are of Australians. Yeah, uh, And that, that's certainly been my experience. And I've absolutely loved my time here. And I've loved the people that I've met and the relationships that I've developed, both through work and uh, in, in my private life. Yeah, I think by now you should be an inaugural Australian, can't say that word, but you should be... <laughs> honourable, an honourable Australian. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You should be an honourable Australian by now, I think. No, on, honorary, honorary Australian. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually about to apply for citizenship. So. Oh, good work. Yep. Yeah. So you've spoken about your father and the real impact that he had earlier on, as well as your coach, your first coach in swimming. Was there anyone else that played a big role in your journey, whether it be mentor or family member, or was there a few? Certainly my father. He was a massive mentor for me and a huge source of inspiration and and knowledge and advice. Uh, Sadly, he passed away about nine or ten years ago. In fact, just after the Olympics, we did the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing, and then he passed away about a year later. And that that was really tough. You know, being so close and having had so many fantastic experiences. I did have a a fantastic water polo coach and his name is Boris Kipnis. And our club brought him out to New Zealand. He was coaching in Israel at the time, but he was out of Russia. And he just had such a fantastic way of talking and relating and getting the best out of people. And... He was my club coach, but he also was the coach of the national team in 1994 at the World Champs in Rome. And he had some fantastic methods to really inspire people. And I remember some of the swim sets we did were emulating a game of water polo where we would do you know, effectively four sets of, of 10 sprints, which was like four quarters of going backwards and forwards down the pool uh, and simulating the attack counter-attack, counter-defense type situation. Mm-hmm. And I remember so vividly in between the sets, he would stand there with his stopwatch and take our pulse rates. And as we were sucking in the air, desperately trying to recover, he would say, go to get the oxygen to the muscles. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he had this just great way of kind of lightening the mood. And hugely motivational and hugely knowledgeable. And so I took a lot from him as a coach and as a mentor. Uh, And then I think there's just been a a bunch of people that I've either worked for or worked with who you really kind of look at what they do and how they do it. And you take the good things and say, 
there are some things that I can learn and, and adapt or adopt for me and my style and equally learn from the people that maybe aren't quite as good in your mind mm. and think about the things that didn't work for them and the things that you would definitely not do. I try and take the, the best and worst out of every situation and think about how I might apply those with any challenges or problem solving or whatever else it might be. And one of those guys is Nigel Cass and he effectively ran Rugby World Cup. He was the operations general manager of, of the tournament and everything else. And I reported to him initially with the volunteer program and he just had this really unflappable way of dealing with everything. And when things started to speed up and escalate, he would purposely slow down. Oh, wow. And you could see him just taking in all the information and asking really relevant questions that cut through all of the noise and then making really good judgmental decisions. And I've taken a lot of the way he operated and quite process driven. And he not only was my boss for rugby world cup, but he was also the president of the recreation association where I worked previously. (laughs) So I had a bit of knowledge about him and he came to my wedding and we've been very good friends. And I think that's one of the things that I've tried to do with a, a lot of people that I've worked with is maintain those relationships after the roles, because you never know where you might run into them again. And I just really value the relationships that I've been able to establish and build up and develop. Yeah, they've made you who you are. So to be able to draw on them later. And I find myself so many times that someone I've had as a mentor when I've been young, that I've been able to draw out of their knowledge and their expertise now as I've gotten older. And it's great to be able to have that. Um, Absolutely. What a great skill to have when everything goes off, just to be able to sit back and, and relax and slow everything down. Man, that's a skill I'd love. Yeah, what's one of the things that I've tried to do during this whole COVID situation? You know, I think we can get wrapped up in the moment and become in some respects a victim to the urgency. Yeah. And I think just that ability to try and step back and assess. I'm not saying I'm expert at it by any stretch, but I do try to apply that as a pull and I think sometimes it works. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely showing through. It's, I think it's a great skill that everyone should have. And like you said, we do get caught up in the pressure and the moment of everything to be able to sit back and, and register that that's what's happening and sit back and then take it all in. That'd be great. I think we need yeah. to run a, a workshop on that, a webinar. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> or you need to, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> so with new swim teachers and swim coaches coming through, what advice would you give them? What wisdom would you pass on? I think first and foremost, do it because you love it. Do it because you're passionate about it. Do it because you love seeing the results, the growth and development of people. And I don't just mean about holding a breath or having correct technique. It's, it's about all those life skills that you give. Yeah. The confidence, the time management, the discipline, the perseverance you know there are so many things that as coaches and teachers I don't know maybe consciously we don't know that we're doing it some do I'm sure but I think the impact that we have on people's lives is so profound it's so important and 
you know, the fact that we're teaching a life skill or coaching something that is so important to people, you can never take that away. You can, you can never underestimate the impact that you're having on someone's life every day. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I love this industry. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about this organization, because what we're trying to do is develop teachers who get it, who understand that and who are making that positive impact and having that positive influence on the people that they're dealing with each and every day. And for me, that's, it's a very noble cause. And, you know, that's something that gets me out of bed each morning. Yeah. Wow. That's very inspirational. It's exactly it. There's so much more to it than just, yeah, getting someone to blow bubbles. It's the life experience and the life lessons you can get from it as well. Looking into the future, whether it be the future is in, you know, a couple of months with COVID still around, but also, you know, five, six, ten years down the track when COVID's gone, hopefully, and, you know, we're developing swimming. What does the future of swimming look like for you? That's a really hard question. (laughs) I think there's probably lots of aspects to it. What does the industry of swimming look like? What does the competition look like? I think regardless, it's going to look different. And whether that's COVID-19 or whether it's the impact of the ISL, whether it's the reflection that so many teachers, coaches and swim school operators would have had during this time to think about how they can come back better and stronger. I don't know that we know the answer. I don't know that we know exactly what changes are going to occur or what it's going to look like but I'm pretty sure it's going to look different than what it did. I think there's an opportunity for teachers to think about the way they interact with kids. There's an opportunity for swim school owners to think about the impact that they have in their local community. I've noticed that there is now a much stronger family orientation and family connection Mm -hmm. that people have had through COVID-19. I think there's been a, maybe a re-emergence of those family views and in, in the time that families spend together that we probably haven't had since we were kids, right? Yeah. And I don't think we can underestimate the impact that that's going to have on our industry uh, at a learn-to-swim level. I think we need to think about the way we could have more family-oriented sessions, classes, programs, whatever it might be. I think there's a real opportunity around adult learn-to-swim We've probably got some lost generations that didn't learn or don't have that confidence anymore. And certainly we've got a migrant population that probably need those skills, Mm -hmm. particularly if their kids are getting them now. And if the kids then all of a sudden want to take the parents to the local river or beach or whatever it might be, then, you know, there's a, I think there's a real need for that. Maybe not the demand yet, but I think we can probably work on that. Yeah. In terms of the sport, I really don't know. I don't know what it might mean in terms of having virtual meets where kids can compete against other kids in other pools in real time yeah. and times can be compared and virtual results given. You know, whether that's an option, I don't know. I think about the vulnerable groups in our society and, and I look at the officials on deck and some of them are getting on in age and we've got a lot of officials on deck and meets and do we really need them all with the technology that we've got 
you know, what might that mean in terms of the way of the future? Not least of which the funding, the fact that we're going to be in an environment nationally and internationally where there is a huge debt that's going to be have to repaid and what that might mean in terms of funding of sport even at an olympic level who knows i certainly hope it doesn't go down but at what cost to other industries like health or education or whatever else and so like i said i don't know it's really hard to crystal ball this it's really hard to to project what might come and i think probably the best thing we can do is maintain that agility and that ability to react and adapt and think clearly about what might happen within any given situation. So that's kind of where I'm at. We're ready to move and adapt and change. And if that means doing things differently or working with different organizations, then, you know, I'm up for that. And I think it's probably a conversation that we can have. I think this provides us with a great catalyst to do things better, more efficiently with greater outcomes. And I think what we've had to do is stop and reflect has given us the chance to be able to shake up what swimming was. I think all sport in general, we're saying that, especially out here in the country, that numbers were dropping off, members were dropping off, families went into it as much as what they were. And this has just given us opportunity to sit back, reflect, look at what was happening and how we can adapt it to bring it better. And it gives us the, the chance to push swimming forward in a new way. Gee, I wish we'd had the chance to sit back and reflect. We've been as busy as anything. <laughs> All of us have been sitting here going, oh, what have we done? You've just got flat out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, well, someone's got to do all the work for us. <laughs> <laughs> to finish off, and like you've said, this one we've sort of brought up, but in regards to not having so much funding out there, that was starting to drop off already or whether the funding needs to be directed in the right way in better ways. How can individuals as well as the industry in general promote and develop swimming without as much funding and to be able to bring that success and more participants back into the sport? Oh, you don't (laughs) mind asking hard questions, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Got to get me out there. I wonder if there's an opportunity for more organizations to come together and use the scale to do bigger, better promotions, more effective maybe. I certainly think there's an opportunity to do more with technology. Just exactly what we're doing today, you know. We've run something like 25 Zoom meetings, whether it be webinars or town halls or whatever else, in the last probably 25 days. And I think people are looking at the technology options and saying, actually, this could be a game changer for what we do and how we do it. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean in the context of a swim school or a club? It's probably more around the promotion than the actual delivery. Yeah. But certainly, I think there's, there's opportunities to do things differently. Again, I don't really know the answer. <laughs> but again, I think we have to be open to what the options are. Yeah. That's probably the biggest message going forward. If we do what we've always done, we'll get what we've always got. Yeah. Let's try something different. Yeah. That's perfect. Well, thank you. That's the last of my questions. (laughs) 
I think, right. yeah, you've done well. There's so much information that you've offered there. I like Sally's podcast before. You guys have just got a wealth of knowledge and people are going to learn so much from it. So to be able to share that and your expertise, your experience, thank you. It's amazing to be able to do that. And for myself, I'm being a bit selfish, but to listen to you and hear what you've said, I think I'm thinking along the same lines as what you are. And that gives me a bit of guidance and like to know I'm thinking the same way. I feel good about that. And I've just learnt so much myself. So even if no one else listens to it, it's made my day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks Katrina. And thank you for all your support. You've, you know, doing things like the podcast and, you know, even just asking questions and challenging our thinking is really valuable. And so I think we all play a part and we all have a contribution to make and you're certainly making yours. So thank you for doing that. And, uh, and long may that continue. Thank you very much. Oh, that's very kind. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I just, any way I can help. And to me, swimming's my life and swim teaching is my career. And to be able to give that to other people and expand other people's knowledge, especially out here in the country where mm. I think we've always been a bit of a lost entity. To be able to develop that now, that's my passion. That's what I want to do. So this just goes a long way towards it and gives me ideas and hopefully other people ideas to develop it and bring more on board. Excellent. Well done. Thank you.